You've heard a little bit already about the structure and the reason for lamentations. What I want to do now is we're going to go bird's eye view over the top of it and try to pull some of the most important or meaningful or meaty sections out of it. I don't want to forget, though, to challenge you right away uh, the way that I challenged the first service. But even before I do that, why don't I tell you the page number? It is on page 685 of your pew bible it's after the book of jeremiah for those of you who are looking for it in your bible jeremiah is after isaiah and isaiah is generally in the middle you open right to the middle you'll hit isaiah and then jeremiah and then lamentations and i'm right about page 685 i know i've been giving you misinformation that seems to be a problem in the news these days. yes misinformation left and right i've been giving you misinformation about page numbers i had a large print version up here that somehow had gotten moved in. I, I tried to avoid that problem, but it happened anyway. Anyway, page 685 is where we're going to start. I don't want to forget to challenge you, though. Here's, here's the challenge. I mentioned how chapter 1 through 4 are, are all poems. Chapter 5, then, is a prayer based upon what he knows because of the poems. And my challenge to you as Christians, as Bible readers, this week is that at some point, just once, you go home and you pray Lamentations chapter 5 out loud. And you open it, you read it out loud as a prayer about the state of the world right now. Because I don't care, I mean, I do care what your political persuasion is. I actually do care. I think there's good, I think there's bad, I think there's reasonable arguments people can make. But at the end of the day, Whatever you think right now about this, that, or the other thing we would vote on, I don't think anyone's like, you know what, this is the best times we've ever lived in. I don't think anybody's thinking that right now. And so whoever you are, you can open Lamentations 5 and pray to Jesus that he would fix it. Because that's what it is. It's a prayer recognizing that the reason things are so bad is because we've been punished by God. That we are being punished by God. And therefore, the only one who can stop that punishment is not us changing, but God ceasing to punish. And the reason, by the way, that he grieves us is so that we would see that he's the one who can bring good times. So whatever good times mean for you, and I'll be straight up honest, 1997 was pretty good. Whatever it means for you, it's not coming back without Christ. And so pray that he would bring you that quietness, that peace, that certainty. I think, again, one of the worst things about right now for me, I mentioned misinformation, is the confusion that's so frustrating. In 1997, I was wrong about a lot of things, but at least I knew I was thinking something straight, and most other people thought straight, too. We, kind of, we had a direction. We all knew where the ground was. And now it's all topsy-turvy. can't tell where to stand. So again... My challenge to you, after all that I say next, is to take this prayer that's about recognizing we're where we are because we're being punished by God. Let's, as a Christian congregation, pray this prayer for this place, for this area, and of course, for the entire world as well. All right, so you heard read chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 a few moments ago. This is about the destruction of Jerusalem. Imagine Jerusalem as a great walled city, a place where if there was an army coming with swords and shields and arrows, you'd go inside this place and you'd be safe. 
It had a water supply, so you could stay there for a very long time without having a lot of trouble. There were food stores that were here. It was a citadel. There were many towers. One of the kings had built ballista, that is, big weapons that would shoot huge objects down on the invading armies. Yeah? And at the center of all of this is the temple that Solomon built, a wonder of the ancient world, at one point plated entirely with gold all over the place. Not quite all the gold's there by the time that it collapses, but nonetheless, a, a bastion of wealth, civilization, geometry, science, and worship of the one true God. Now, it's all been raised to the ground. There's still a mountain there, but there's no walls, and there's no temple. How lonely sits the city that once was full of people. Yeah. Now, I don't think we're quite there yet, but I have seen, I mean, in America, although some of our cities are getting pretty rough, they found a body in the river in Philadelphia this weekend. It's getting pretty rough, but I have seen some pictures of what's going on in Ukraine, and while I don't believe everything I see, and I know for a fact video game footage has been used by newsreels to talk about it, so not all of it's true, but I have seen some pictures, again, of before and after shots of various areas of neighborhoods with all the rubble and People kind of wandering around trying to figure out what to do next. That's what you got to see was here at this time, too. And now Jeremiah is going to compare this city to a woman. A woman who once was renowned and beautiful, a princess, a queen, but who had pursued too many friends that proved to be false friends. And they've turned their backs on her and harmed her. How like a widow she has become. She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. So again, using the image of a woman whose her husband has died, she has sought friendship elsewhere, but those who would lead her have proven to be thieves who sneak in and steal and destroy. Verse 4 is about the collapse of the worship service. That the roads to Zion, which three times a year were filled with faithful people going up for Passover and the Feast of Booze and the Feast of Atonement, now they're empty. And so none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. They're broken down and cannot be entered with thanksgiving. Her priests groan because, of course, they have no altar to sacrifice on. And let us not forget, what we may touch on this, her priests were part of a major problem. Her priests were faithless and had not proclaimed the word of God. And so now they groan under the weight of their own collapse. Her virgins have been afflicted. Uh, that is something that probably means much worse than just feel bad. In the history of the world, when a city is taken, doesn't matter what kind of woman you are, virgin or otherwise, they do wicked things to you. And that's, that's what he's referring to here. She suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper before, uh, because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. So 
Again, if, you, if you're into the news cycle right now, you would think the foes of the United States are prospering. Yeah? That's at least the story they want you to tell. I don't know that I disagree entirely, but I would say that as Christians, our government has not exactly been our friend for some time. Our government continues to promote abortion overseas with all manner of funding, and I believe it was just, I'm going to get the number wrong, but it's something like $12 billion was just appropriated for gender ideology to be promoted in foreign countries by our government. So the idea that your foes have become successful should not be, in your mind, Americans, about Ukraine and Russia. It should be about how our churches have failed to have an impact on the country in which we live. From the 1950s, where we thought we were a Christian nation, to right now, we have fallen a very, very long way. And I would suggest to you it wasn't just the last two years. Maybe the last two years we're waking up to it. Yeah, But then, notice and believe this part. Whatever you might think about the politics, believe that what is happening is because, verse 5 in the middle, the Lord has afflicted us. If he has let Christianity in America cease to have an impact on the culture, it's because Christianity in America wasn't worth having an impact on the culture. Whatever we thought we were trying to do with all our mission and our vision and our boasting and our this, that, and the other, let's change this, let's do that, let's be this, whatever we thought it was, it wasn't more Bible. It wasn't more certainty. And as a result of this, God has said, away with you. I will just empty your pews. I will just let your children disappear. So again, to recognize where, where we are, not because God isn't watching, but because God is watching. And now he sends this affliction in order for us to have it be clear in our eyes what we need, what we must do to emphasize it being God's doing. Turn to chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Chapter 2 as a whole is about how this is what God does. When wrath comes, when bad times come, it's not the devil. Don't blame the devil for your problems. Recognize that God sent this to you. If you're a Christian, then remember Job. And remember how God sends suffering you don't even deserve sometimes in order to prove and strengthen your faith. But before you stand up and say, I don't deserve it, start by saying, you know what, Lord? You're God. So for all I know, I do. I do deserve it. Or like Isaiah, who recognizes that just by dwelling among a people of unclean lips, he therefore has unclean lips. That corporate guilt is a real thing. That the blood of innocence shed on the ground cries out to God and he hears it. That's why he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Because the blood was crying out over what had taken place there. Chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid it in ruins, its strongholds. And he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. Verse 6. He has laid waste his booth like a garden. Referencing Isaiah, by the way. He has laid in ruins its meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation, he has spurned king and priest. 
The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of a festival. That is the enemies, the, 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 the desacralizers, the profaners, when they're conquering the, the city, they're in the temple trashing it, and they're singing in praise over their great destruction of God's place, and God's the one who let it happen. Yeah. Verse 8, Jesus, the Lord, determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampant and rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. So you hear the he, he, he all the way through that. The point is, when catastrophe comes, it's again not because God wasn't watching. It's because he didn't. And the honest, faithful question is, dear Jesus, I may not know why, so show me why, but show me why in order that I might change my ways and live. That's repentance. Jump down to verse 11, where he, Jeremiah explains how sad this is. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground. I, I threw up, right? Because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. Skip over to chapter 3, verses 7 and following. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my path crooked. I think that's where I want to stop again. Jeremiah himself saying, I'm part of this. And remember, this is a faithful prophet. Is a Christian. It's nothing specifically that Jeremiah the individual did, and hence he despairs. Even my prayers are being said no to right now. But then the thing is, what are you praying for? Are you praying for God to prop up faithless Jerusalem so its harlotry might continue? Are you asking God to restore times that you might live in fleshly lust and passion and not think about the life of the world to come? Well, of course, he's going to shut his ears to that because he wants to save you. He wants to wake you up. And so again, he sends catastrophe upon us. Now, I want to give you one more piece of this that I think is important for us at this time in history. Now, again, I, I don't want to be a preacher who's all about the news, but neither do I want to be a preacher who ignores where we actually are. Okay. So I'm going to have you skip ahead to chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. We're going to go back to chapter 3, but skip ahead to chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, and recognize that it's not always about you. Sometimes you just inherit it. Okay? 7 says, Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. Sometimes you just inherit a godless civilization. But what do you do then? What's the right thing to do when you realize that what you were taught was wrong? The right thing to do is, it's Lent, right? 
Repent. Repent just means turn around. And that means then when you know something is wrong, turn to what is right. And I'm not just talking about the obvious things, but let me give you an obvious thing. Statistics say better than 80 or 90% of men have experienced pornography and or do so regularly on the internet. How long do you think God's going to let Christians keep doing that without it coming home to roost? That's just one example. And I don't want to just poke at you. I want us to see there's a lot going on that's evil right now. And so if we're saying, what's going on? How did it all go so bad? We're not watching. We're not having integrity within ourselves. Again, I want to be kind of careful how I say this. I don't want you to feel personally accused. I want us to accept corporate guilt. But I'll tell you, the amount of money that the average American Christian spends on ourselves, whether it be from remodeling our homes, to going on vacations, to whatever else it might be, and I don't want to accuse you, okay? I just want you to see that we have lived in the lap of luxury while under our midst, all sorts of other great wickednesses have been taking place, such as the murdering of the unborn in Holocaust diminishing numbers for a generation and a half. And so we go home to our nice places and we think, isn't it great to live here? And we just kind of, what? Don't read the Bible like we should, right? So whatever we are going to do, and I'm not saying don't remodel your bathroom. If you've been saving to remodel your bathroom, remodel your bathroom, but then recognize where it came from. See the glory of the Lord in prospering you and remember that you've been prospered not for yourself, but to share with others. And then remember that a place like this isn't here just for us to have worship like we like it. It's here for us to be a city on a hill, to be light and salt, to be a people who are different than our neighbors because we have a true God on our side. And that again means we pray the prayers of the Bible. We let the word be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from our holy and righteous God. So if you've inherited from your fathers any of this, and we all have, the point is not to blame the fathers even. The point is, as it's going to say in a moment, to put our face in the dust and say, Jesus, have mercy on us sinners. Let's look at that. It's the famous text, or one of the most famous texts out of this book, chapter 3, verse 22 and following. 22 and 23 are the famous verses. They end up on posters and mugs and all sorts of things, which is, is fine, but cherry-picking this verse out of the book and missing everything else I've been saying, that's not so fun. Not so fun. So it says, The steadfast love of the Lord, remember the Lord is the Lord Jesus for you. Jesus is Lord, yes. The steadfast love of Jesus never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. That means when you inherit the sin of your fathers, that's the mercy of God. That means when catastrophe comes upon you, that's the mercy of God. When Job loses his entire family and his entire wealth and then has his body covered in sores, that was the mercy of God. Now again, our flesh is like, wait a minute, I don't want this mercy, right? But again, look what happens to Job. Does he stay in this position? No, it's in order to prove his faith, to shut the devil up, and to bring Job to an even higher place than he was before, which 
whether or not you get everything back in this life, although Jesus says you will, he says those who lose things in this life will get a hundred times more back in this life and in the life to come. Now, if you're going to be martyred for the faith, I've said this before, it's important. If you're going to lose all in this life, they actually burn you at the stake or they crucify you. By the time you get there, you're going to be loving it. Not in terms of the pain, but in the terms of like, I'm ready to be done with this. You take me home, Jesus, it's all right, because this place is evil. And again, the more that the times we're in can wake us up to see the days are evil. Ephesians chapter 5, the days are evil, and so we must stand firm here. We stand firm knowing you're never going to be anywhere God didn't put you. It's never because he hates you. It's always because he loves you. For such a time as this to prove your faith, able to trust him over and against the lies of the world, the devil, and your flesh. So that you may always believe his steadfast love is with you. Now, as a Christian, this has been demonstrated eternally in the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is the unyielding loyalty of God to you and all people. Your being baptized into his holy name is a straight-up promise to you specifically to set you apart from all other people as an inheritor of that promise over against the inheritance of your sin. And you're feasting upon the body and blood of Jesus as the way bread, uh, the, the food that keeps you alive in the faith waiting for his return. This also sanctifies you. It sets you apart. It makes you immortal now. That is this steadfast love, this kesed of Jesus that never ceases. And again, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I'll tell you what. I hate mornings. Maybe you agree, maybe you don't. Every night I have nightmares. I'll get personal. This is, this is my childhood coming home to roost. Every night I have nightmares. I've been begun talking about it with Meredith. I'm like, okay, tonight I'm going to dream about something, but there'll be a car and there'll be a conflict. It's weird. I don't know where the cars are coming from right now, but every night, cars and conflict. And I know I'm going to wake up, and the first thing I'll feel when I wake up is, I don't want to be here. Not I'm tired, but literally, I wish I had died last night. Now, I have no control over this. It's not an intellectual thing that's happening. It's just me being honest with how I feel. I don't feel like the mercy is new in the morning. Hmm? You follow me on this? So, so this text is all the more important for me. Because when I don't feel that it is new, that there is mercy, that there's a reason to be here, that is the time to remember that my flesh is untrustworthy. That when I open my eyes and I don't like what I feel, that's the liar who ought to go to hell. But that I have been redeemed again, made alive, to be able to have self-control over this person. So that when my wife says, how are you this morning? And I want to say, awful. I can say it's another day. I'm going to walk with Jesus today. I'm going to be here and I'm going to proclaim his word in some way, shape, or form. Now, I'm not saying you have to go and preach. But I am saying you have to go and preach to yourself. And when you face whatever it is that's your morning like mine, whether it's morning, day, or night, whatever the news is, whatever the problems are, I know a lot of you have significant challenges with relationships that are close or far, with things that work, on and on and on. 
to know that the mercy is new every day, that God is always sufficient for you right now, this again is a superpower given to you as a free gift to set you apart from the world around you. Going on then, again, 22 and 23, highlight those, feel free to, they're the most beautiful verses in the book, they're the most quoted for a reason. He breaks out in 24, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will hope in him. 25, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. So again, whatever the story is, we just took a left turn in the news cycle on the story. One catastrophe to another. Whatever the story is, it is good to wait silently for the salvation of Jesus. Yeah? It is good in every scenario to remember that the answer is not us, but him. Put away the news and remember what I said about Christianity and our failure to stand up to our calling in the last two generations. It's not your fault personally. We've all done this together. It is good for us especially in this season of Lent, to quiet our voices, to humble ourselves, to sit down and wait and say, Lord, if anyone is going to make this better again, it is you. Verse 28, let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. Let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. Skip ahead to verse 40. Let us test and examine our ways and return to Jesus. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to the God of heaven, saying, We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. In that, then, the point is not to believe that he won't forgive, but to ask for the forgiveness now to declare to him that we need him. Wisdom is repentance. Skip ahead to verse 55. Here is the beginning of this prayer. Again, chapter 5 will really be all prayer, but here it kind of comes a little bit. I called on your name, O Jesus. From the depths of the pit, you heard my plea. This is my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my cause. You have seen all their vengeance, all their plots against me. You have heard their taunts, O Jesus, all their plots against me. The lips and thoughts of my assailants are against me all the day long. Behold, they're sitting and they're rising. I am the object of their taunts. You will repay them, O Jesus, according to the work of their hands. You will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heaven, O Jesus. To hear the certainty there. Again, and this is what we have as Christians. And no matter what it's like now, the resurrection is coming. Hey, here we go. Christ has died. Christ is risen. 
Christ will come again. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Hope does not disappoint because whatever Jesus says he's going to do, he does. He is going to return to judge the living and the dead. And you have already been judged innocent in his sight. Yes? And so all those who set themselves against Christianity and against his church in this wicked day and age, they will get their due. The judgment will put them where they need to be. It doesn't have to happen now. What has to happen now is for us to remember we're in the wilderness, not in the promised land. We're in the place of sojourn, not the place to put down foundations. The foundation that's laid is Jesus Christ's body risen from the dead, and you are part of that now. Time has passed for doing what the nations do, dwelling in their ways, even though they look at you askance when you don't join them in their wickedness. All right, so to close this morning, a uh, little short today, uh, chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, just the close of this prayer. Actually, since we have time, I'll just read the whole chapter, though. We'll only talk about the last two verses, but so that you can be exposed to it. This is my challenge again, that you would pray this prayer out loud this week for your world, your nation, your county, your city, your congregation, your family, and yourself. Yeah? Pray this prayer for all of those things, seeing where we are and knowing who you pray to. Remember, O oh Jesus, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is as hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are, there it is, raped in Zion. Young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill, and boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate. The young men have left their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us. For we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick. And these things our eyes for them have grown dim. For Mount Zion which lies desolate. Jackals prowl over it. Now, verse 19 through 21. But you, O Jesus, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Jesus, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Now, verse 22, but Christian, you don't get to really believe this is true. Let me tell you, unless you have utterly rejected us, he has not. He has not. 
and you remain exceedingly angry with us. And you can pray it, but pray it knowing that the answer is, oh no, I've not rejected you. I've cast you down that I might raise you up. I've wounded you in order that I might heal you. I have sent you to death in order that I might raise you from the dead, everlasting and glorious forever. All right. So maybe I overplayed my hand today. I don't know. But I know this. We could have peace. We could have wealth. We could have everything be like my favorite 1997 and still all go to hell. And so at such a time as this, I'm convinced that what it is for is for we as Christians to stop putting in our hand with the wicked and thinking that in their benefit, we get benefit. It's for us to remember what is really, truly valuable, ultimately, things like marriage and children and bringing up our children in the faith, the fear of Jesus. To remember that is to truly be blessed. And I'm asking you, no matter who you are, what age demographic you're in, to pray for that. Not only for St. Paul, but definitely for St. Paul. Not only for St. Paul, but for Rockford. Wouldn't it be amazing if in 150 years, Rockford is a glorious, successful, powerful, wise city that benefits all the region of what once was called Illinois simply because Christianity filled people with wisdom and hope and knowledge? Wouldn't that be incredible? Now, we can't live to see that necessarily. Some of the youngest might. Why don't we pray for it anyway? Why don't we believe it's possible? Of course, the Lord can come back soon. He can wrap it all up, and maybe he will. But if he doesn't, isn't it better to go down praying hard for something better than to just sit here and assume it's going to keep getting worse until Christianity is just squished out of the continent? So again, I challenge you. Let that imagination run wild a little. Believe it's possible for everything we see now that we once thought was good to be destroyed and for us to live through it and come out better on the other side because we return our hearts to Jesus. Because we rend those hearts rather than our garments. Because we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And we hear him say, as he says to that Canaanite woman, great is your faith. Great is your trust. You've hoped in the right one. Yeah. In the name of Jesus. Amen.